Welcome back to the 20th episode of Occupy Interview, and this episode is Occupy Space. Uh, our two guests, guest co-hosts, uh, Linda Pillsbury Foster. Say hello, Linda. Hi, everybody. Hello. Yeah, I'm certainly glad we're here today. It sounds like it's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, so far so good. Our other co-host is Robin Kerner. And uh, say hello, Robin. Hello, everyone. I'm looking forward to learning something today. <laughs> James, uh, we're really looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, this is James Pura. He's president and director of Space Frontier Foundation. And uh, our other guest is Pat Bond. We're having communication glitches with him. Uh, hopefully we get it before the end of the day. He may be popping in and out. Uh, James, if you're still there, could you tell us a little bit about uh, about what's going on today with Space Foundation? It's a big day for you guys at New Space. Sure. Hi. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Um, James Pura, Space Frontier Foundation. I have a little bit about me. I've been a uh, I've been a space nerd all my life, and uh, I've volunteered with the Space Frontier Foundation for about five six years now. And uh, and now I've I've gotten to the point where now I'm the, the president and director. So uh, I I am uh, I've I've been involved with every project of the foundation. And today, one of those projects, one of the three major projects that we have. We have, um, just as background, we've got the business plan competition, which happens every year, and that's what we're doing this year. Uh, we also have an annual conference, and, and that's in San Jose, right next to uh, right next to Apple and Google and everybody else in Silicon Valley. And then our third project is Teachers in Space, where uh, where we inspire STEM education and the next generation of space entrepreneurs. So uh, the Business plan competition is being hosted today on Stanford campus. The we have eight finalists that are either directly related to the space industry or have space scalable technologies that are uh, that are of interest in the industry. And all eight of them have now it is it is now noon West Coast time. So all eight of them have presented to the judges, uh, the distinguished panel of judges. Are you still there, James? I still have yeah. gotten in and out. James, if you're still there, uh, you were telling us about... Uh, I'm hearing a lot of background noise as well. Um, that's probably Pat when he comes in. Okay, we need, we need Pat to mute his mic because it's, uh, it's distracting from what uh, James is saying in that, in that case. Okay. Pat, could you hear that okay? No, it looks hey, like James is here. Oh, hey, go ahead, James. We're we're just dropping in, and I think there was a lot of solar flare activity coming <laughs> yesterday, and that usually messes up the satellite feed on Skype. We've run into space weather. Gotcha. Uh, space weather actually makes a difference, and that's another thing people aren't really used to. Hopefully, we can get you to touch on some of the things that uh, that, that Space Frontier Foundation is doing, trying to keep an eye on what's going on out there. Uh, go ahead with what you were talking about. It's fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about any of the business plans? Absolutely, sure. We've got, uh, like I said, we've got eight finalists, um, and uh, and some of those some of those finalists are involved in things like uh, communication networking within with space uh, between satellite between 
and satellite feeds, like a business-to-business type thing. And then we've got uh, we've got everything ranging from uh, there's there's a company called Sysinex, which focuses on systems engineering experience, uh, all the way up to you know propulsion, latest and greatest technologies, um, and microgravity experiments, which is infinity in the aerospace. So. Um, it's it's a, it's a lot of companies that are either directly involved in space or have um, space scalable technologies, and uh, it's very exciting. I I'm kind of bummed that we uh, that we didn't have the live feed so that everybody was standing by to watch the presentations this morning. Apparently, Stanford's having some technical glitches, kind of like us. Probably, but, um, but the space the, yeah. Yeah, right? The, um, so it's not just affecting us, apparently. <laughs> uh, but the, all, the, the entire thing today is being recorded in high definition, and it will be uh, available on our YouTube website and, and our, our foundation website um, in the coming days. Great. We've already got a link up to the Space Frontier Foundation site. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an advocate, although I'm, a, I'm an inactive. Uh, Pat is a is an advocate. He's an inactive. So we could pretty much have a meeting here. <laughs> uh, Melinda, did you have anything? You, you were uh, Melinda's uh, executive vice president with an investment group. Uh, did you have anything to add about the business plans? Uh, have we lost Melinda too? The gods of communication are not smiling upon us today. Robin, are you still online? I am, yes, I can hear you. Hey, we got so somebody still. We're, we're, down, we're down to three then, right? Uh, for the moment, I'm, everybody's popping in and out, so we'll just kind of go yeah. with the flow here. Did, did you have I'm, a question? I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in, why, um, in why we don't talk about space popularly and in the media as a context for the solution of many of the problems that we talk about in the media. What do you think about that? James, I think that question was to you. Yes. I, yeah, I'm, I, I just wanted to, I, just, I was waiting for my lead in. I, I can jump all over that question. Uh, I think, you know, right. That's why I asked it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's like the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of take the roundabout approach to answering that question, but it'll, it'll, definitely, uh, it'll definitely be answered here. You know, when, when, people, uh, when people ask, you know, why do we have a space program at all? You know, it, with, with the current budgetary issues, we have a lot of problems down here on Earth, and, and why not take all that money that we spend on NASA and spend on things like world hunger and other things like that? And then they go in their pocket and they reach for their iPhone, and then they use Google Maps, which uses satellites. And then, uh, you know, they use, they use GPS, and they use uh, all these other technologies that if it weren't for space, uh, and NASA and developing these technologies over the last 10, 20 years uh, would not be possible. Um, there's a lot of directly re- relative technology that comes straight from space that we use every single day. And I, don't, I just don't think that people really understand that. They kind of take it for granted. And I don't know whether that is an, a, uh, a responsibility of the space program itself to kind of like uh, to kind of like tout that a little bit more, or whether we just like let it go and focus on the the, the next greatest things. It's uh, it's definitely an issue, though. Do you, do you think some of it is um, basically lack of imagination on our part, on the part of the mainstream? 
on the part of the mainstream, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think that, I think that a lot of the blame happen, it falls on the, on, you know, on the, the fact that we haven't had an exciting space program since the days of Apollo. Yes, we built the International Space Station. Yes, we built the space shuttle. But we built one to facilitate the other. You know, we built the shuttle mm. so that we had a way to get up a station, and then we built the space station so that the shuttle had a place to go. And we've been doing that loop, you know, 130, 140 times over the last 20 years. And yes, we've been doing relatively awesome science, and, and you know, we've got seven astronauts living and, and rotating around in space, and and uh, and we're learning a lot. But in terms of exciting, public engaging things like the Apollo program, it's not there. And I think that's what we're seeing today where, you know, the mainstream media is not, you know, kind of like relatively connected with what's going on in space is probably something that is, is fallout because of that. What, what, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of state funding of such an effort on the one hand and private funding on the other? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, I think there needs to be a balance between the two because private funding usually goes to things that will make money, not things that will do the public good. And I think that's where NASA and, and NASA and congressional funding for, and DOD and stuff like that uh, and private funding are two completely separate things. Yes, they have a little bit of overlap in between um, because there's a lot of technologies that will profit public companies and are for the greater good. But um, I think there needs to be a balance between the two. And the other thing is that, you know, private funding is very good at taking technology that was once thought impossible, like launching vehicles into space, developing that technology, and proving to the world that it's possible. Now, when it gets to such a mature level of technology, such as now, where we've got commercial companies, I think a handoff needs to happen um, between and, – and launch companies is, is no different from, you know, say, locomotive or airplanes or anything like that. It's just our generation's version of that. Hmm. So can you give me an example of something of a public good that will come from work in space that you think only the state can deliver? Absolutely, sure. Um, there is, it, it's, it's, the, it's the biggest problem that we have here. Our planet is only so big. There is only so much square footage. But you look into space and it's, it's virtually unlimited. We have unlimited amounts of energy out there. We have unlimited amounts of space, like literally like space that we can build stuff in. And so that, that fixes that fixes population if we figure out how to have people living and, and, uh, and able to have kids and, and walk around in space and do normal life, then we can solve the whole hunger issue because now we have unlimited room to grow food. And then we can solve the, the, the problem of energy uh, with the almost limitless amount of energy that we can But uh, the, a lot of the things that you've just said there sounds as if they would be quite attractive as uh, the basis of commercial enterprises. Yeah, but it, it, I think in order to get private funding 
force something like that. It's if yes, if we have a Richard Branson or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and and saying, hey, you know what? Here's fifty million dollars that I don't know what to do with. Let's see if we can solve world hunger by growing stuff in space. Yes, that's definitely something that the private sector, the private sector can. James, I lost you. Of it, where the where the state and the commercial uh, or where congressional funding can, is, they funding and they say, look, you know, this business doesn't make sense to a venture capitalist firm. We don't see, but it benefits the common good. So we need to start now, so that in develop that we can actually hand off to the commercial sector. James, I, I, I need you to back. I don't know if anybody else is having this problem, but I was only kind of getting two-thirds of what you said then. You were cutting out. Oh, I apologize. No, so, I, I don't know that it's, that it's actually your fault, but um, is every, is, can everybody else hear James? No, he was cutting in and out. It's, it's well, once okay. again, it's the weather. Okay, James, do you mind kind of backing up a bit? And, and I'm sorry sure. to ask you to repeat, but just kind of go back <laughs> a couple of paragraphs, as it were. Sure, no problem. So... These issues that we've been addressing, uh, you know, the, the hunger, the energy, the space, uh, the overpopulation, yeah. all of these issues can be addressed with there's – there's a lot of things that we need to learn in space in order to fix these things eventually if we were to go there. But we're not at that level now, nor will we be within the next two, three, four years. This is going to be an ongoing operation where we have to really focus on developing the technology, developing the infrastructure, so that one day it can be handed off to the private sector and the private sector can make money on it. The problem is, is that if we don't have, you know, multimillionaires or billionaires funding this from day one, nobody, like a venture capitalist firm, will not, will not fund a company that's not going to be profitable for 10 or 20 years. That business case is just not going to close. But where government funding can come in is say, look, this is for the common good, and we need to develop this technology, whether it makes money or not in the future. And that's where, that's where NASA can come in and say, look, you know what? Let's set up a habitat in space and just figure out how humans can live. Let's figure out how to create gravity. Let's see if people can have kids in space. Let's see if we can grow something with the sun radiating on it. You know, and those are the kind of mm. things. That's the hand-in-hand -hand, uh, partnership that the public and private industries can have. And do you think there is? You, what do you think it would take for, I guess, our representatives to sell that vision in a way that got kind of sufficient public buy-in that it became a a, 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 polit a political issue that could be acted on? You know, I think you I think you talked about it uh, just recently. You said lack of imagination. I think it, it's, it's on everybody's part that wants to see this happen to sell it. You know, we get sold on things every single day. The reason why we buy a certain brand of soda is because the commercial and, and the billboards and everything around it, it makes it look more attractive than the others. What we need to do is we need to tell the story and we need to tell the public why this is so important. The problem is is that it's so – well, it's not the problem, but it's – it's a contributing factor is the fact that the people that care about this so much are so focused on the technology that there's not a whole lot of salesmen out there trying to lobby Congress in order to make this happen. Hmm, and presum presumably the salesmen need to be the politicians selling to the people. Well, 
I'm not I'm not too sure about that because congressional funds suppose Oh, James, you're cutting out again. Oh, I apologize. What about now? Can you hear me? You're good now, yep. All right, great. Well, you know, this is this is all assuming that our that our government funds what is for the for the greater good of the public. But as, making that assumption, uh, I believe it's it's on the part of it's it's on the responsibility of the of our technical leaders to tell Congress what we need to spend our money on. And if if those if those sources if those two groups of people don't agree, which is what happened recently, uh, we end up with a situation now where everybody's just so focused on just keeping NASA together. You know, we're focused on, all right, give them something to do so that we have a certain number of jobs in single district, <clears throat> despite what we're building, despite what the greater good is, despite what problems we're solving. Let's just keep it because we right. need it. And then we'll figure out what to do with it later. That sounds like um, that sounds like a fair description of most large government bureaucracy. Hmm. Uh, um, what? Now you've talked about NASA a lot, James. What about um, are there the, the most some of the most important programs that you would like to see initiated? Hello. Um. Yeah. Can you hear me? Hello. Uh, I can hear you. Okay. I think uh, you guys have got feed. Go ahead, James. Hey, there you Here's question. Okay, I'll just make this my last question, then I'll hand it um, back to uh, uh, Mel and Terry, and we'll talk to Pat. Um, I was just going to ask, you mentioned NASA a lot. Um, are all of the important things that you would like to see initiated, are these, would you see them all as something that the nation should take on, or are there some that you think must be begun uh, as international projects across governments? Oh, I don't hear a response. Uh, he's probably will just fade in and out. It's, it's the wonders of live radio, guys. It'll uh, and and everybody's having the same trouble. If Stanford also was having problems with the feed, Pat is in and out too. Mel uh, Melinda, are you there for the moment? Pat's in. Hey, Pat, are you there for for a second? Uh, I'm here, Terry. Hey, uh, Pat, did you hear? Uh, can did you, do you want to address? Yeah, I'm here right now. Can you hear? Yeah, we've got you. Can you go ahead and address? Uh, no, it sounds like you cut back out again. No, well, there you are again. Can you? I mean, I'm here. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I kind of lost uh, chunks of what James said, but it sounds like he was talking about he was addressed by Rob. What? I can't. I can't hear Pat. He's cutting out. Public goods can. Uh, okay. Look, is this any better? Yes. Go ahead, okay. guys. It's just the best we're going to get. It sounded today. like. It's not, it's not. All right. It sounded like Robin's original question to James. What things can the state provide as a public good? Pat, you're fading out again. Uh, I, Melinda has a question, um, but it looks like 
she's also in and out. And, and again, I apologize for the level of sound quality we, we've got, but this is what we've got if we want to do this today. It's not going to get any better until the solar flares back off, and I'm not joking. Um, so can we get whoever's still on, uh, Melinda, you had a question for me, and I'll relay it. Uh, you were coming across on the text, and we'll just have to work with what we've got, guys. Okay. Uh, Melinda's got a question. She says mostly out. Uh, we haven't been able to hear you since she first came on. Okay, well, we'll try and relay the messages uh, that you send us. Any question that you wanted to give to James, if he's here. James, are you still on? Yes, I am. I'm here. Gotcha. Um, would, okay, shall I, ask my, shall I ask my, my question do. of James again? Please do. So, I mentioned that you, I noticed that you talked about NASA a lot, and it seemed um, that you, uh, that the, these kind of programs that you would like to see initiated, you would see initiated as national uh, projects rather than international ones. Are there, uh, are there some important projects that you feel sh would have to be begun as a matter of international cooperation? You know, that's a really good question, and I, the, I believe the International Space Station was international for one big reason. It's because we couldn't afford it all by ourselves. If we could have afforded to build the space station all by ourselves without the Russians, without Canada Arm, without everybody else, I believe that we would have done it just because of the level of complexity required to do an international collaboration. Uh, but there's a certain amount of pride that comes from the fact that it is international. Even though it's a national laboratory, uh, the Latin National Laboratory is only a portion of the International Space Station. So I believe there's a certain amount of, of victory that comes from that project. Now, the thing about international projects, and you have to keep in mind, is that, is that whatever we're working on, whatever developments that are happening, it's going to, is it going to benefit only the United States or is it going to benefit the world? And is it going to, is it going to impact our national security if we make it international? And it's just, there's so much more complexity that comes into doing a project that is international. But, you know. James, I lost you after you know. I lost you after, uh, after you know. You said uh, complexity about doing okay. something that's international. Yeah, I said the complexity, but, you know, things like living and working in space is going to benefit everybody to have Because if we figure out how to do it and the Russians don't, then that makes us the bad guys for not sharing that technology with us. Hmm. Had a pretty good blast of static there, James. As soon as it clears back up, we'd like you to go ahead and keep on that. Our, uh, our other co-host, Melinda Pillsbury-Foster, when you come back on, if you can hear me, she's asking what kind of enterprise. I couldn't hear you at all. Lost you completely. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm here, but I think Pat needs to mute. So. Yeah, I think Pat. Yeah, a lot of the problems here. Yeah. Relay that to him. 
Uh, go ahead. Uh, did you hear the question from Melinda Pillsbury Foster? What kind of enterprise does it look like to be Okay. I can't hear you. Everyone needs to mute when they're not talking. Uh, now we've got a clear signal. James, if you're still there, what kind of enterprises look like they'll become profitable first? You know, I think the, I think the Leo, the Leo launchers are going to be profitable first. Probably, probably companies like SpaceX and Orbital. Um, I mean, they're already profitable. Uh, looking after that is probably going to be the space tourism groups. Uh, if, um, you know, big fingers are crossed that nobody dies within, within the attempt to, to get that industry off the ground. But I believe the amount of tickets that X-Square Aerospace and Virgin Galactic have sold up until now without even having a test vehicle uh, proves that there's a market for, for that. So I think that's right around the corner as well. You know, beyond that, it's anybody's guess. Asteroid mining, lunar mining, who knows? Pat Bond just got a question across. Uh, he wanted to mention particularly the information businesses are profitable, imaging, weather, telecom. Can you elaborate on that, James? Yeah, I believe the weathering and weather and telecom um, industries, I mean, they've already been profitable for a lot, you know, for a very, very long time. Things like Doppler radar and you know, NASA weather satellites and, and these things, that's an industry, that's, that's a billion-dollar industry that already makes tons of, tons of cash. We, uh, Robin, did you have anything on that, or are you still with us? <laughs> well, it looks like Robin's dropped out now. Uh, James, if you're still there, it's a pretty good signal all of a sudden. Um, we're wondering whether you uh, you could go ahead if you're still there. And I'm, I'm here. Got you, Robin. Uh, could uh, could you go ahead and touch on uh, one kind of uh, asteroid watch? This is the first time in history that if there's an asteroid coming in and if we see it in time, we could actually do something about trying to deflect. Can you touch on that one, James? The you know the deflection of an asteroid. Uh, the, the, I guess the, the whole, uh, Mel Gibson or the, um, uh, the Armageddon approach, uh, is, is proven, uh, unsuccessful. There's a lot of technology that, that's out there that if we were to shoot a rocket into an asteroid, it probably wouldn't stop from, from impacting the Earth and, and killing everyone. Uh, the good part is that, you know, we, we, the industry has been talking about it for so long that some really innovative concepts are coming through. For instance, like asteroid deflection and uh, just just noting which asteroids are out there and which and where they are and cataloging them and mapping them is critically important for us figuring out which one's headed our way. And yes, this new project sounds really cool. Um, I, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical just because they're not the first ones to to say that that this is gonna this is gonna happen, but um, I'm hopeful. Well, it, it, uh, even if you catch it far enough out, uh, the deflection that looks like the best chances, and again, this is something that's been talked about for 30 years. Uh, if you could get some kind of low thrust on it for a long enough period of time, uh, a tiny little bit of translation makes a big difference. Can you? 
Can you touch base on that? Is that basically what they're looking to do, James? Yeah, it's basically like a tug, right? So the reason why our tides change when the moon gets closer and further away when it's orbiting the Earth is because that the moon has a certain amount of gravity, and it pulls the water up and down. And using that concept for asteroid deflection is depending on what size the asteroid is and depending on what size the other thing that's next to it is, is you can pull it out of its orbit and you can create a new trajectory so that if the math is all done correctly and, you know, the people that are working on this definitely get the math right and uh, and it'll just change the trajectory just enough to where it misses the Earth. And that's I think that's their uh, their their core technology and their core, you know, idea. Uh, the Space Frontier Foundation was involved with uh, with the teacher in space, and and the one thing I really find fascinating is the Embry commercial space degree. Uh, can, can you tell us a little about that, please? Absolutely. So, Space Frontier Foundation has formed a partnership with Embry Riddle Aeronautical University, and Embry Riddle has been uh, has been the first one, and I believe there's going to be more. But Embry Riddle is the first one to offer a commercial space operations degree. It's a four-year degree. I believe they're working on a master's program now. And the whole idea is that commercial space is here to stay. It's not a fad. The academic community has realized a need for educating these people. And, I mean, the students are flocking to this degree program. I think this in the first year they got, like, 50 sign-ups or something like that. So it's uh, it's very interesting to see what comes out of that. And we've got space companies, and now we're educating space workers, and and we already have engineers. Uh, I, I think it was a it was a missing piece that is now fulfilling a need. So it won't uh, won't be on the job training like us old fossils. Uh, <laughs> they're actually going to get some kind of an idea. What kind of course? We will have a uh, a link up on that. And have you gotten any kind of feedback on what kind of uh, what kind of course information they're putting out? You know, I'm not a, I'm not a representative of Embry Riddle, so I can't really say. Okay. But uh, from what I understand, it is not a core engineering degree. Where you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of colleges out there that have four year engineering programs. I believe what the what this is doing. What this degree program is doing is training project managers and entrepreneurs. That's what we're going to need. Uh, that's what we've uh, been talking about. We're, we were looking at uh, public sector and private sector. Um, yesterday was a big day for Cygnus. They ended, uh, they splashed down, burned up on reentry. Uh, that was one of the private sector resupplies of the International Space Station. Uh, can, uh, again, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure, and that's just so just so everybody knows that vehicle is designed to to burn up on reentry. It's not it's not designed to bring cargo back to Earth. It's so so everything was totally fine, even though you heard burn up. Um, uh, it's it's um, you know the stuff that gets burned up coming back is things like the garbage and 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 waste and stuff like that. So yeah, it's that's totally fine. A- it's about a but ton of nice. garbage that they incinerated, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's just a it's just a big garbage disposal, or yep. their version of a garbage disposal. Uh, <laughs> the the very the very cool part is the fact that we've proven now 
with two different companies that cargo can be delivered to the International Space Station via a privately developed rocket. And it's not just once. It's not a fluke. It's proven that if we, if we set the industry up enough to where the incentives are lucrative enough, then we can create entire industries uh, in the private sector that once was the job of the government. And I believe this is a huge victory for commercial space, and, and we need to follow this model in more, in more industries and in more, in more projects in space. Again, we'll have links up on this. Uh, Cygnus was the orbital sciences bird, I think. Uh, check yes. me if I'm wrong. No, uh, you're correct. Okay, and then the other one, um, there's also a uh, SpaceX. Don't they have a bird, too? It's a resupply ship, Yeah, they too. do. They're, that's their, that's their uh, driving capsule. Okay, so we've got, we've got two different, in case one, we always used to talk about it as uh, 10 years ago at least, uh, get more than one tail number. And I'm sure you're, you, can, uh, you can elaborate on that better than I can. But, but basically Absolutely. it was two completely different uh, designs, two different systems, two different capabilities. Can you talk about why that's an advantage? Well, it's, it's just like any other industry uh, or, or set of companies that do the same thing. If one goes down, you've got a backup. And not only that, but we also have competition, which doesn't exist in the in the government. Uh, you know, if, if the government funds a project, it doesn't matter how inefficient it is. It doesn't matter uh, how long it takes. But if you have two companies that are competing for the same pot of money, it's going to eventually get faster, better, and cheaper. And I think we've seen that. Um, okay, which let, let me ask a question, kind of going back to what we were speaking about earlier, but also kicking off from what you've just said. Can you specify a problem that we that we a terrestrial problem that we have that we can realistically say could be more cheaply and or effectively well solved by going into space to solve it because it seems that we need to frame the question that way if we're going to get the kind of political buy in that's broad enough to actually make you know begin some of these big uh, visionary kind of steps forward in space that you'd like to see and i'm not sure and i'm not sure what those problems would be that we all know that we have but where a space-based solution would be cheaper than a terrestrial one mm -hmm. well that's a really good question and the short answer to that is we don't know yet there's a lot of really promising ideas out there but nothing's been proven for instance, there's this whole idea of space-based solar power because by the time you have your solar panels on your roof of your house, it's collecting 10% of the total energy mm -hmm. versus if you had that same solar panel outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, what if you were to collect that and somehow harness it and beam it down to Earth, just like you beam down you know, DirecTV cable channels? If you were to beam down energy, then theoretically, you would need to burn coal in order to get electricity ever again, because you've got solar energy hitting every single part of the Earth that has a population. Uh, it, it drastically decreases when you get to the Arctic and Antarctica, but right. for the vast majority of it, if you 
we were to figure out how to beam that down and compete with the same amount of money that we pay for energy currently, which is the biggest issue. It's not technology. It's the, it's yeah. the amount per kilowatt. Then it starts to make sense, and people start buying in and start figuring it out. Now, with that technology currently, the math doesn't make sense to compete with the amount of energy that goes directly to your house and powers your, your, your light bulbs and your channels and stuff like that. What it does compete with are things like military outposts where they have to truck oil in via vast miles, burn it in generators, and then use it. So the, the cost per kilowatt for like military outposts is astronomical compared hmm. to space-based solar power. If they were to just somehow unravel a collector system and make sure that there's a satellite overhead that beams down electricity, then not only is it way greener and we don't have to deal with any of this kind of like trucking oil back and forth, but it starts to make sense for a government perspective too because now they can, they can leverage that technology and start developing it for other applications, even though they but, have the core application to begin but with. But that, that seems to suggest, and, and I know Pat's been putting in messages, uh, sending us messages about this, that the that what you really want to do is create a competitive market in every stage of the process that would, for example, put efficient solar powers outside the atmosphere. Absolutely. Um, but who's going to do that first? That's the, that's the thing. It's like what company every, – everybody that you talk to you know, over cocktails at a bar is going to be like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Definitely do it. But who's going to put up the first $10, $15, 20000000 million that it takes to even see if it works? And the answer is that no venture capitalist is going to go – if it company, believe me, those companies have been have started up before, and it just doesn't work. So the government has to step in and fund that first, prove it, then the investors flock to the to the public companies. Now I'm I'm prepared to believe that, but I just don't believe it off the bat, because I think there have been so many technological advancements in history that have been done. Um, that that that, ha that haven't depended on that, you know. They've been. It's been the amazing imagination of an individual or the sm or a small group of individuals, um, you know, or just the ego of a couple of individuals. You know, it, I just I I'm just concerned that as you know, you mentioned the era that we're in, um, you know, of uh, watching the public purse earlier in the call. Um, you know, it's the old thing about. You, know, you can get government to do something to solve a problem more clumsily and more expensively um, than if you than if you can get people or corporations competing from the beginning. And it, I mean, I'm not sure. That, I mean, maybe that's a false dichotomy. But um, is is this government to seed big technology? Is is has it is it always that? Is that always the only way that works? I'm I'm just. I just find that hard to believe. Well, if a – let me put it to you this way. If a public company 30, 40, 50 years ago were to say, hey, I've got this thing. I think I, I want to call it the internet, then a venture capitalist firm would be like, that's a terrible idea. But it started in the military. It started as no, no, a DARPA project, no, James, I, and it I, developed I, to the point where now it's public. Of course, I get that. There's loads of examples. I'm not saying there's no examples where, of, of course, if you are the government and you develop something, 
then that thing will be developed because the government has, you know, more or less infinite money. I mean, it prints money into mm-hmm. existence. It, you know, it will get done. I'm not saying it won't work. Of course, it will work. If you, it's mm-hmm. a bullet a gate. But what I'm saying is, we, I, that's not the only way this kind of thing works. And if oh, it's not, not. Own, and if it's not the only way, given the political and economic constraint, you know, mostly political and monetary constraints, um, you know, why, you know, why just kind of assume that off the bat? I mean, government, there have been times, too, where government spent a lot of money to get something that the private sector has delivered a lot more cheaply. And, in ter- and the, you know, the theme of all of these interviews is, is growth, economic growth, growing ourselves out of where we are right now. Um, so I think this is a really important question. I, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure, just as a matter of history, empirically, that the answer is obvious. D- do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do, Robin. Uh, I believe I believe you've hit the nail on the head, and you know I've I've put a lot of thought into this as well. And yes, you can you can use a government hands-off approach and just wait for the pi- private industry to figure out a way to do it. But there's probably a better way, which is you speed up the process by throwing a little cash in the very beginning, developing it really quick, and then handing it off. So that the, the the private sector doesn't have to wait and build a little, make a little, build a little, make a little, build, that and then ten work. years later we finally have it. That would work if government could do anything by throwing a little cash. <laughs> now, yeah, unfortunately, space is very expensive. Isn't the? I mean, the only way the government really generates things with a little cash is to offer basically to, to run competitions, isn't it? Where private, where, where entities in the private sector get what to the government is a little cash, but to what, what to them is a massive reward or prize, um, for a successful effort. Absolutely. And the prizes, the whole prize, uh, you know, the whole prizes uh, thing is, has proven highly successful. And uh, also, just as a side note, I've gotten word that our online streaming is now working for uh, for the business plan competition. So if you want to catch maybe a couple of panels on the afternoon, you're, you're, and and the uh, the winner will be announced as well this afternoon around five o'clock uh, Pacific time. But anyway, getting back to our getting back to our conversation, uh, I think you're totally right, and the prizes are are great now. The question you have to ask yourself, though, is if we have this huge successful piece, and it's this proof, if you will, that the government can put a little bit of cash in the beginning and then the private sector can take it and just run with it and create industries that way, is, well, can we apply this model to other things as well? For instance, uh, this, this is a question that the Space Frontier asked itself, the Space Frontier Foundation asked itself about two years ago. And, well, we've been asking various versions of that question for, for 25 years, as long as we've been in existence. But this latest project called There Is Another Way, we tried to use that approach to the entire NASA human spaceflight program to see if there was a better way of applying the put a little bit of cash in, hand it off to the private sector, let them develop it. And because the government has a limited amount of funding Every single year, why not spend it on various different technologies, hand it off incrementally, and then move forward and build it? For instance, the International Space Station. If you were to build the International Space Station half as big as it is now 
and then have companies like Bigelow Aerospace, which is building its own private space habitat, if they were to rent out space or maybe laboratories to rent out space and start generating cash and then the then NASA wouldn't have to step in and have seven full-time astronauts just keeping it on orbit. Hmm. See, it's a different way of thinking. If you if you start from square one, I'm going to design this piece of space hardware to eventually hand off to the private sector, then you start asking certain types of questions. For instance, how many people is it going to take in order to in order to keep this thing working? Is it going to require hand, hand, hands-on stuff? Is it, requ- is it going to require yeah. constant communication with, with Houston and Florida and California simultaneously? Or can it think on its own? We're and about, maybe that makes more sense. Oh, sorry, you know, those, those are the kind of... Sorry to interrupt there. We're about 45 minutes into the show now. We're going to taper it out in the last 15. We did have a question uh, that I'd like to address uh, that came in from... Um, Melinda, she was saying, is there anything that's already showing that uh, is strictly something that can be done, say, in microgravity? Uh, There used to be the electrophoretic separator experiments from McDonnell Douglas. Um, That was showing good data. I have spoken with James Rose, and I'll get links up on it. He said it was showing up as as the, the results were there. The economics was what was stopping it, and again, there'll be links up after the show as soon as I can get it written. Can you touch on that real quick? Uh, was that a question for me or Robin? Uh, that was to you, James. Uh, okay, I, I need a bit more clarification. What was the question again? You, you remember the electrophoretic separator experiments, uh, Jim. The, the first private worker in space was uh, Jim Rose from McDonnell Douglas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, I've, I've spoken with him. He said uh, basically, that the results were there. It was the economics of the of the 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 irregular scheduling and the totally irregular cost uh, of of space transportation, which is something the Space Frontier Foundation has been trying to address for a long time. Um, do you see anything that is a that can be done in microgravity that can't be done on Earth? Uh, that was her question. What we're trying to do is what – when we talk to the taxpayers that have invested a lot of money here, and this is basically a political discussion, how do we justify this? Uh, are there any places where we know for sure we can say, yes, you can do this on orbit, and you can't do it anywhere else? One of those would have been H3 strip mining, uh, tritium. You can strip mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be what's holding up fusion is a – economical source of, of fuel for it. You can't get that here. It's not economical here. That's something that possibly is only could be done from off-planet. Uh, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Uh, and the, the short answer is yes. There are a lot of things that can only be done in microgravity and in deep space that cannot be done here. For instance, crystal growth. Every single part of the Earth vibrates at a certain frequency all the time. And we're seeing this right now when in each one of our pockets we have a cell phone. And cell phones have gotten smaller and thinner, and each transistor is now smaller and smaller and smaller. 
And now we, we have the manufacturing industry of those, of those technologies saying, hey, wait a minute. We can't build it any smaller because we don't have a machine that can overcome all of this vibration. We need to create stuff that is just pristinely nice, but the entire earth vibrates due to seismic activity that we can't even tell with our feet. But our, our super scientific instruments can detect it, and it's starting, to, it's starting to mess us up. The thing about space is that there's nothing to vibrate, and you can totally create pristine crystalline structures. Now, the other thing that I've, that I've known, and I am definitely not a, an expert in this industry at all or, or in this part of the industry, but uh, there's, a, there's a company that uh, the CEO is a friend of the foundation, Rich Godwin. He has a new company called Zero Gravity Solutions, and this is everything that he makes money on, which is technologies that can only happen in microgravity environment that can't happen, but he's got applications directly on here on Earth. And one of the biggest things that he does that he talks about when when he he describes he describes his company and what it what the vision is for it is something that directly relates to your question, which is you know chemical bonding happens very differently when there's no gravity attached to it, and what happens when a company like Pfizer can develop a drug and can do research directly in space, in a microgravity environment that cannot be created at all down here on Earth. That's something that uh, Pat Bond was adding in. I can see his message here. He is seeing data that shows large crystals for proteins. They can be done in orbit. But, again, economics isn't there because we don't have reliable transport. We don't have cheap transport. Um, well, okay, so we have to, we have to address – we can't just focus one thing at a time, right? If, if we had everybody in the entire space industry focused on cheap launching to space, there would be no space program because there's only a certain amount of people focused on and interested in that thing. There's a lot of chemical engineers that are very interested that they don't, they don't care how they get to space. They just care about what they do in their, with their little trinket and their space tubes uh, in the laboratory environment on the International Space Station. So we've got to kind of tackle this issue one at a time or, or uh, on many fronts all at the same time. That's what we're trying to address here. Uh, yeah. and, and, again, there's a lot of stuff we really want to try and get our, our guests, our listeners, up to speed on. Um, that's why I was uh, really hoping we could get more time pre-show to kind of work out we're just now getting our rhythm here. Uh, it would be nice to get uh, Rick on the show to talk about the microgravity. Uh, Pat added in Mike Kelly 15 years ago, chief engineer at FAA, AST, and I can't remember what that stands for. Uh, with the high price of launch, the only thing worth sending down from orbit is an electron. I guess he's referring to the uh, communications as one. That was why it was one of the first things that was a commercial breakout. Uh, Melinda asked, do you see a gradual removal of government as a source of funding as private enterprise builds an off-planet economy? How do you see that? Do you have any thoughts? You're talking to people that are trying to create a political platform. Go ahead, James. Well, you know, just addressing your first question, which is we're just getting our rhythm. Well, you know, you can, I'm, I'm more than welcome to, uh, to come back to this show and have a follow-on, follow-on discussion on this. I, 
I am a, uh, a self-proclaimed space nut, and uh, any chance I get with a microphone in front of me that I can talk to other people about how cool space is, I love it. Probably about so. a week or two from now, we'll take <laughs> you up on that. We really, really are trying to get a, a, a cross-platform, not just Republicans, not just Democrats, not just liberals, not just conservatives. We are changing a paradigm here, and exactly. it requires a lot of work. Uh, ben Franklin supposedly said, it's not easy to build a new world. Uh, we've got about ten minutes left. Um, any, any thoughts? Uh, I, there was one thing I wanted to touch here. Uh, we're coming up. There's a $50 billion U.S. taxpayer investment in International Space Station. End of life for it is now scheduled for about seven years from now. I have seen plans to take pieces and parts off of it. Uh, and start uh, other things like uh, I think Space Frontier Foundation did some of the pioneering work on this when you tried to lease out Mir. Can you touch on that real quick? Yeah, exactly. And this is and this is uh, this is touching on what I talked about before, which is if the International Space Station was designed from the beginning with that thought in mind, like what is our end game here? then it would have been designed very differently. It would have been designed to hand off to the public sector. The Space Frontier Foundation would love to call the International Space Station the first permanent habitat in space. And companies like Bigelow Aerospace and SpaceX and other things like that, I believe, want to attach different pieces to the International Space Station, and it might actually turn into that. But we have to start having those conversations now, which is what happens when we don't have any more NASA funding for the International Space Station? Where does that money come from? Because clearly it was designed to require a certain number of human beings there at all time dialing knobs and turning cranks and stuff to keep that thing even on orbit. You know, And it's going to require a set number uh, of uh, – a set number of – you know, of dollars that is going to require every single year, and that's not going to change, and it's only going to increase as well. So, but the question that we're now asking as a foundation is we have all of these entrepreneurs going to and from the International Space Station, SpaceX, Bigelow Aerospace, uh, um, you know, Zero Gravity Solutions is doing science on there, Nanoracks is doing science on there. now we've, we've gotten step one. Now what about step two, where instead of just going back and forth, doing their experiment and bringing it back down, why not renting out a section of that and then creating its own laboratory? Then that company can, can share the cost of keeping it up. And then maybe, maybe one day uh, at the day where NASA says, look, we're not funding this anymore, and the, the, the government says, look, we, we just don't have the cash in order to fund this anymore, then maybe we will have had this conversation enough and enough smart people will have thought about it and we could actually turn it into to, to, uh, to a situation where is not like the, the space station mirror, which is that conversation just happened far too late. And it ended up not getting the funding in time and it ended up coming down. We're having that conversation now, James. Uh, we've got about yep. six minutes left. Um, uh, they're used to being saying uh, L5 and 95, and this is a pretty complex subject to try to get into, but basically a Langhorn, Lang, Lagrange Point is a place that's a good place to put a space station for a multitude of reasons. And one of the things they're talking about doing to recycle pieces and parts of our $50 billion-plus 
U.S. taxpayer investment is create a fueling base at one of the Lagrange points with some pieces of the International Space Station. Have you seen any of that? Any thoughts? Uh, can you restate the question? Uh, we'll have links up on it, but again, what 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 can the Occupy conversation trying to create a public broad-based pu- – the people are interested in this – but the information is not getting to them. That's all of us are saying the same thing there. How do we speed yeah, up? Absolutely. The, how do we speed up this information? We all have to work together. Ben Franklin used to say, you know, "Join or die." That's exactly. You know something that the something that the Occupy movement does very well, if not the best of anyone else, is they just don't stand for any BS in the government. And that's something that the foundation has been fighting for 25 years, which is why have a space program when you don't know what the end game is? You don't have concrete goals and milestones which, with, with timelines attached to them so that you can measure progress. And that's something that – that's the reason – that's the biggest reason why I said yes to this interview is because I very much agree with, with, with your message here. We've got about three minutes left. Um, we have started, and I want to stress, just started, uh, a dialogue that's absolutely crucial here. Uh, this all goes back to e- either we grow or we just keep having the same mess we got going. I would like to talk to some more of our people from Space Frontier, from the private sector. Please put the word out there. Uh, we'll... we'll it would help if we get a little bit better organized ahead of the pre-show, but we'll get the hang of it. We're making all of this up as we go along. Uh, got about two minutes left for a last thoughts. James, what do you think? Give us something optimistic, please. Something optimistic? Here's a whole heap of optimism. We, as a human, as a human race, are very interested in exploring and expanding our knowledge base. When people look at movies such as Star Wars and Star Trek, they say, oh, yeah, one day, yeah, I can see that happening. The thing is is that there is a gap between that amount of thumbs-up approach, which is you know belief that it's going to happen, and today. How do we get from part A to part C without a step B, which is where the foundation steps in and says, look, these are what these, found, these, are what these milestones need to happen. This is what's not happening but still needs to happen. So I encourage all of your listeners, you know, go on spontier.org, look at space.org slash there is another way. That's the video that we talked about, which is the alternative approach to NASA's space program. And it's just a, a kind of a case study of what happens when you, when you ignore all the things that are happening now and say kind of like do a redesign. And, you know, just have those conversations with people that are interested in space. There's a lot of people out there. You've got to talk to them. quarter of a million of them listening to you last month. Um, you've got a pretty good audience, and they're really interested. Let's keep this dialogue going, please. I don't know of a better way to try to end this show. Um, we're about out of time, and hopefully we'll have some more of them with some more of the people that are directly involved. Hopefully next time we can get Pat Bond if the solar flares don't knock us offline again. And, again, I want to stress what you were hearing is space weather. Uh, there was a time when you couldn't predict space weather. Uh, actually, nowadays, you've got a pretty good idea when it's coming. Um, people don't think yet in terms of how much they're affected by space. 
hopefully we're beginning to change the way people think about that. That's a paradigm shift. I really want to thank our guest, Pat Bond. We'll have to get you back. Uh, he had a lot of things he'd like to have been saying, and we just couldn't get him with the lousy signal that we had. Uh, James, outstanding. You made me proud to be an advocate, sir. <laughs> thank you, Terry. Uh, great it's, talking uh, it's to you. It's been a pleasure. It's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, for our co-host, Robin, are you still there at all? I'm Any here. last thought? We've got about a minute. No, that's great. No, I feel like I had most of the conversation. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. We've Thanks lost. very much, James. Yeah, and I, I, I'm aware that the, the messages Pat was sending contained a bunch of great information that would make a show in, well, you know, of, of itself, and, uh, yeah, we didn't get a chance to get to a lot of it, so thanks for Pat for sending that. I don't know, maybe we can do something else with that later. I'm going to try and put it into the article that will go around this. Again, it would have been nice if we could have had it put together ahead of time, but we're making this up as we go along. That's a frontier kind of thing. Guys, we're out of time. Thanks for standing. Uh, we'll catch you again in about a week. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Bye, all.